Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you uh, for the kind introduction. And uh, thank you all for coming out to, uh, to hear what we have to say and to talk about uh, world poverty today. Um, I want to begin with what I hope is an uncontroversial assertion that uh, it's bad to be poor. In fact, I think it's so uncontroversial that the uh, United Nations has made it the first of its uh, sustainable development goals by 2030 to eradicate extreme poverty for all people everywhere, currently measured as people living on less than $1.25 a day. Now, two things are important about this that we're going to touch on. One is uh, for people everywhere. This is something of a departure from uh, the usual measurement, which concentrates on poor countries and raises some important and interesting challenges. And the dollar and a quarter a day, you'll hear more about that shortly. But who is poor? Let's start more broadly. So uh, we'll start with pictures. So we're going to look at two families, Um, a Ukrainian family. So this is a picture of their home their stove, their light source, the place where they serve guests, one of their beds, they have many beds, their wardrobe, their toilet. They don't look very poor, right? Here's a contrast. Here's a Liberian family. This is their home, which has a lot in common with the the huts in the uh, heritage village. Um, That's their stove. That's their light source, the place for serving guests. That's all of their bedding. That's their wardrobe. And that's their toilet. So we can, I think, I hope agree that the Ukrainian family doesn't look poor, but these people in the Liberian family, they do look poor. So the question is going to be, if we want to measure how many poor people there are, where we're going to draw the line and how we're going to draw the line. And in fact, um, My view is that the line should be just about where the Liberian family is. There's many more people with lower incomes than those. So, um, but before talking about how I think the line should be drawn, let's uh, look at the lines we've got. So the World Bank already has a line. Uh, In 1990, it was set at $1 a day. Um, The procedure was revamped in 2005, and the line was raised to $1.25 a day. That's what was referred to in the Sustainable Development Goal was raised again in 2011 to $1.90 because of inflation. Um, The procedure is uh, purely statistical, as we'll see, and neither imposes nor defines a consumption standard. So where does the dollar a day come from? So this is a graph from the original study that produced the answer. And this will show you kind of the, the basic reasoning behind the line. So the vertical axis shows you national poverty lines for various countries. There's 35 countries from very poor to very rich here. And so these are the net lines set for each country. And then on the horizontal axis, there's per capita consumption or basically their income. And there's two things to take away from the graph. One is that the richer countries tend to have higher lines. They have a higher view of what poverty constitutes poverty. And then the poorest countries are all clustered there in the red circle uh, without any trend at $30 a month, which is a dollar a day. So that's the basis for a dollar a day. It's sort of an average of the lines set by the poorest countries. 
But we don't have any idea what that actually gets you. So as I say, this was all redone in 2005 with 74 countries. And you see the same rising pattern of the lines, national lines with income. And the poorest 15 countries there have an average line of, in this case, $37.50 a month, which is $1.25 a day. So that's where the $1.25 a day comes from. And these countries are important because this is a reference group that still defines the line, even though it's a dollar been raised to a dollar ninety. It's based on the experience of these fifteen countries, and one of their important characteristics is that thirteen out of the fifteen are in sub-Saharan Africa. So this is sort of unavoidable if you're going to take a statistical approach like this, because most of the poorest countries in the world are located there. But it's going to have the effect that I think that the the line that's used for the whole world is defined in many ways by the conditions of sub-Saharan Africa, which may make it less than appropriate for other places. So this procedure raises many questions. You know, how are the national poverty line set? What budgets underlie them? How should they be adjusted for inflation? How do we convert lines from local currencies into dollars? There's all these difficult questions. Do the lines... So should the line apply globally or only in poor tropical countries on which it's empirically based? Um, but I'm not going to discuss those questions, really. I want to focus on what are, I think of as the transparency questions underlying the line. So, like, really, how can you live on a dollar a day? Uh, can you really get enough food, shelter, and clothing to survive? And the bank doesn't offer any answers to these questions because the procedure is simply averaging out the national lines wherever they come from for the countries, in this case, 15 poorest countries in the world. But the one thing I want to do is by the end of the talk, I want you to know the answers to these questions. You'll know what you can get for $1.90 a day and whether you can survive or not on it. So I want to approach the, uh, the definition of, a, of an international poverty line with a, on a different basis by defining a, a, what's called a basic needs approach. So I want to basically come up with a poverty line budget that's sensitive to local circumstances. It has to reflect local prices, availabilities of food, climate, uh, lots of things like that, the real estate market. Um, and so uh, then we're going to see what this would cost uh, all around the world, and we're going to try to find, define poverty consistently on this basis. So um, we're going to have food uh, then we're going to have non-food goods, and then we're going to have housing and uh, add, them, add them together. So for food, um, I want to uh, take, what's, uh, take a, what's called linear programming, a linear programming approach. So linear programming is a kind of classic, a classic problem. Uh, in, the, in linear programming, a classic problem is the diet problem. So this is a, the problem works like this. You have a list of all the possible foods you could construct your diet from. It could be hundreds. Um, you're not going to have them all in your diet, but you can have any number. Uh, then what you want to do is choose the diet from that list of foods to minimize the cost of meeting a set of nutritional requirements. And they can be, it can be a short list. It could just be getting enough calories. It could be a long list with all sorts of minerals and vitamins. Um, but you have that. And uh, so you want to choose the foods to minimize the cost of meeting the requirements that you set. So that's going to mean you're going to need um, prices for all these foods. You're going to need the nutritional composition of all the foods. And uh, 
then you're going to need a computer to tell you what the answer is. But that's the easy part. Um, So uh, a complication in all of this is figuring out what nutritional requirements to use. And uh, I'm going to do this in a step-by-step way and begin with what's sort of, I think, the most elementary and obvious, which is to have calorie a calorie requirement. And I'm choosing the calorie requirement in the first instance at the lowest possible value, which is 1,700 calories per person per day. Now, this is not what you would eat. This is an average across the whole society. So it includes people that are working, adults not working, people who are old, children who are growing up. So they have a wide range of requirements. And 1,700 calories is about the lowest uh, average level you could have. But that's going to be inadequate for reasons we'll see. So we want to then consider more complicated ones with calories, proteins, and fats, the macronutrients. Then we're going to go look at ones with more nutrients to prevent the major deficiency diseases. And then the full course one, which has a whole slew of micronutrients, uh, which will turn out to be impractically large. So as I say, we need data. I take prices from the uh, International Comparison Project 2011 survey of retail prices for all the countries in the world. This is a big international statistical inquiry. Um, And uh, I'm going to test this out on 20 countries from very poor to very rich. uh, And that's how it'll be. You'll see the country shortly. So here's the result. If we start off with a 1,700 calorie model, and you can see the list of countries I'm working with. There's a lot of developing countries, some middle-income countries, and some rich countries like the UK, the USA, and France at the bottom. And so when you do this model with just this one uh, calorie requirement, you end up with one food as, as your diet. And you see that for quite a few of these countries, there's 170-odd kilograms per person per year of some kind of grain product. But the other one, the other uh, column on the right is about close to half the countries. There's 70 kilograms a day of oil. So 70 kilograms a day of oil is that much oil. So if you took this diet uh, seriously, you'd get a cup like that of oil, and that's what you'd get to eat uh, for the day. And one thing that's fairly clear from that is since it only has fat in it, you'd be dead soon. So... Just setting up a model that's where you have a calorie requirement only does not sustain life. This is not a viable diet. Um, so we're going to add more nutrient requirements to see if we can come up with more acceptable diets. And one of the things that happens as we do this uh, is shown by this table. As we go to these more complex diets, we get more food items in the solution. Um, and uh, this, this, there's a play here as a, as a basic, basic mathematical feature of this programming exercise, which is that you don't get any more foods in the diet than you have requirements. So if you have like the calorie protein fat model we look at next with three requirements, you can have up to three foods in the diet. And as you add more requirements, you get more complicated diets. The other thing that happens is you, as you increase the number of requirements, the weight of the diet increases. So the 1,700 calorie diet gives you on average 131 calories of food for the year. The full course one is 427. And an important point about that is that that's way more food than the average poor person on the poverty line consumes. So that's not going to be a realistic model of their behavior. So, okay, what happens when we do this? If we go to the CPF diet, 
we get uh, more foods, we get either two or three. Everybody has oil uh, as part of their diet at much more reasonable levels. And then uh, there's a lot of grains, uh, different grains in different places. And some of them are rice. Southeast Asia, there's lots of rice. And what you notice, the other thing is if, if rice is at the core of the diet, then there's also peas or some kind of legume like lentils or beans. Um, one of the things that's nice about this and which persists, what pleases me, and it persists throughout the solutions or the more complicated diets, is that the model is pretty good at picking out for each country what the predominant type of cereal or grain is. So all the Southeast Asian countries, it's rice. Africa works really well. So Africa, Zimbabwe is one of my countries. Maize is the predominant crop in that country, and maize is the predominant grain in their diet. Liberia, it's a rice-growing place. Rice is what's in their diet. Niger, they do a millet, grow millet and sorghum there, and that's what the diet comes out to be for Niger. Algeria, it's wheat flour. And Egypt, it's, uh, it's wheat and maize, which are the two predominant crops there. So in this sense, the models are predicting the kind of least the characteristics, of, an important characteristic of the least cost diets. So how are these CPF diets nutritionally? So I can compare them to uh, rec recommended daily uh, requirements, allowances for these uh, six micronutrients. And these are chosen because if uh, they relate to the deficiency diseases of uh, scurvy, beriberi, pellagra, and um, anemia. So one of the things to notice in looking at the table, there's lots of stories here, which I don't have time to tell you, but uh, one story is that B12 is all zeros. Uh, that has two implications. One is that, uh, well, one, the reason for that is that there's no animal products in these diets, and that's the only source of B12. And the implication is that all the people in these countries have anemia. Uh, there's also virtually no vitamin C. The implication of that is they all have scurvy. Uh, and if you look closely, you'll see that there's other deficiency diseases too. So the CPF diet's not uh, a good, good basis for a poverty line. It doesn't satisfy basic health requirements. So what I do to deal with that is to add these uh, six nutritional uh, requirements as requirements in the programming problem. And that produces these diets, uh, which are, have more items than the other ones. And the thing that I want to emphasize here is the grain parts doesn't change very much. Uh, the, uh, there's now an animal product in everybody's diet, but it's frequently mi uh, milk or um, a little bit of fish or egg. Not very often is it meat. Uh, and then there's also a vegetable or cassava as a source of vitamin C. So these diets are and are more adequate because they won't have those deficiencies that we noted in the CPF diet. But how can you, like Zimbabwe, the diet is mostly maize with a little bit of millet and sorghum. It's got milk and it's got some vegetable, which I think was cabbage. Uh, so how do you live on that? Like what's the culinary implication of that? And the implication is sadza. So sadza is, says here is the national, drink, the national dish of uh, Zimbabwe. And uh, the, in, the recipe on the right tells you how to make it, which is the two ingredients you need are four cups of water and two and a half cups of uh, white cornmeal. And you boil up the cornmeal and you get this goop, which is the white goop on the plate. And uh, then it's shown there with a little bit of uh, veg to uh, round things off. Uh, 
I've had experience with this, actually. I spent a month in 1968 when I was a student as a, uh, uh, at a work camp in Kenya building a school. And uh, it was a camp intended to bring together secondary school students from different tribes. And we worked in the day, and every day for a lunch and dinner, we had uh, sadza. And uh, I remember the, seeing the first plate of sadza brought out, this big cake, and I thought, wow, that looks like angel food cake. Is that what we're gonna be eating here? And I got this slice of it with a little ladle of sort of curried cabbage on top, and it was awful. It's completely bland, and I can't tell you. So life on the basic diet is really boring. Like, it's not very interesting food, but we ate at lunch and dinner for a month, and that was it. So the full-course diet, I add a whole lot of more minerals and vitamins, and the, only, the thing I would say about this is it means you have a whole lot more food. And in fact, it's an unrealistically large amount of food, so this is gone over the edge. This is not going to explain what people at the poverty line do. So what diet should we use to define the poverty line? Um, I want one that is medically defensible and closest to what poor people actually consume. The 1,700 calorie line is no good because that leads to death. Uh, the CPF diet leads to serious deficiency diseases, and it's not what most poor people consume. Most of them have a predominantly vegetarian diet, but they also consume dairy or eggs or fish. The full-course diet's got too much food in it, so the basic diet is closest to describing behavior and guaranteeing health. So, does anyone actually eat the basic diet? So, I tried to compare the predictions of my model to data, and what I, the data was average food consumption in 1961 for these countries. And I chose that because it was the earliest date for which I could find the data, and also because in 1961, in poor countries, on the order of half the population was probably at the poverty line. So maybe the average consumption would be indicative of the poverty line consumption. So what comes out of these comparisons is this. If you do the comparison for the rich countries, like the US, the UK, and France, the model doesn't predict anything, right? It's a big disaster. So like, we look at the uh, predicted versus the actual food consumption. The model predicts people would consume 343 calories of food a year, and in fact, they consume 906. So it's way off. It underpredicts or it, it overpredicts what, by two how many grain what grain products they consume. Uh, fats off, but things that are really striking: animal products. Like the model predicts about 70 kilograms in their average person in a rich country consumes five times more. Fruits and vegetables, five times more consumption than predicted, right? Other, the model doesn't predict anything for other consumption, but in rich countries, there's 164 kilograms a year of other consumption per person. So other consumption here is mainly two things. About half of this is sugar, and the other half is alcohol. So... Uh, if you do this for poor countries, though, the predictions are much closer to the actuals. Like the weight of the diet, total weight consumed is within 10% of what's predicted. Grain, actuals a little bit underpredicted. Fat's pretty close. Eat a little more animals than predicted. A little more veg than predicted. Other, a little bit of other, which in this case is almost exclusively sugar uh, for festive occasions. So... 
Here's a picture of people in a rich OECD country not eating the basic diet. That may look familiar. Uh, what about poor people? Well, the Liberian family we began with, this is a picture of a plate of their food. So it's mostly a kind of starch, right? And uh, so it's like what the basic diet predicts. So here's uh, other food, plates of food for people in other poor countries. Uh, and they're all the kind of thing that the basic, basic diet predicts. There's a, a bunch of grayish, whitish starch of one sort or another, whatever is the cheapest food source, starch source in that country, with a little bit of other veg usually uh, ameliorating the uh, diet. So I think that the, the linear programming basic diet gets things right for poor countries and that it predicts the total weight of food consumption fairly accurately, predicts a largely vegetarian diet. It usually gets the basic grain right. There's very little alcohol consumed in these countries. So uh, that's about right. So that's what I'm going with in my poverty line. Non-food goods, we need clothing, footwear, bedding, fuel, and lighting. How do we get them? It's not nearly so scientific. Um, but the climates of, begin, the requirements of these things depend clearly on the climate. So we've got to build that in. So this is a picture of uh, factory workers on strike in the 1905 revolution in Russia. And they're pretty poor but they've got uh, heavy coats, boots, uh, big heavy hats, right? They've got a lot of clothing there because it's so cold. Um, here's a picture of the Dandi Salt March in India as part of their independence movement. And these, you don't need as much clothing in India because it's much hotter, right? And they've got light cotton clothing, sandals. Many of the people are barefoot, um, little hats. Uh, it's not like Russia. So, what I did to try to kind of, I had to come up with a parameterization of this. And so what I did was I used um, uh, Prokopovich's uh, survey of St. Petersburg factory workers in 1907 and uh, Shiraz's survey of Bombay cotton textile workers in 1921 to give very detailed information on their spending patterns. And uh, these are nice to also, so the people are indubitably poor uh, and these places are at opposite ends of the climate spectrum. So I could interpolate between it for other cities. Uh, that's what Prokopovich's survey looks like. And the upshot of this is that, uh, indeed, people in St. Petersburg have a lot more uh, clothing, footwear, bedding, and fuel than they do in Bombay. I'm on the order of three times as much clothing, 31 times as much footwear. I guess that's not surprising if you're going to walk in the snow. Uh, 21 times as much, bed, or seven times as much bedding, eight times as much fuel for warmth, as well as cooking, twice as much lighting. So what about housing? Um, I set a requirement in terms of square meters per person uh, of three square meters per person. That's not very much. That means a family of four lives in one room, three by four meters. But that's what the uh, surveys of... Uh, Indian textile workers in 1921 showed the normal situation was. And there's a lot of other examples I give there of various slums uh, where people uh, have about three square meters per person, right? That's sort of the size of one of these panels forming this table. Um, all right, so this is the kind of accommodation in poor countries that, that we're talking about. Uh, and uh, one of the things then, so we need to know how much this stuff, this Cost. So I've had to find rents in all of these countries uh, for, the, for space. And this are typically in cities. Uh, so 
it works out like this. In poor countries, most rents are usually less than $1 per square meter per month. Uh, in UK, USA, and France, it's more like $20 or $25 per square meter per month. So it's an enormous difference in the cost of real estate. Okay, and this has enormous differences for the poverty line. So if we add up the food, the non-food, and the rent, we get this basic needs poverty line. And uh, if we look at the how this plays out for the African countries, uh, it actually comes out, my basic need line comes out at near $1.90 a day. It's not far off from the World Bank. But if you look at these other countries in uh, North Africa, uh, in uh, across most of Asia, their poverty lines, when I calculate them, come out at $250 to $350 per day, considerably higher. And then if you look at like the most expensive countries, the richest countries, um, it's more like $350 to $4 a day. Um, so if we're going to assess uh, the degree of extreme poverty in all the countries of the world, we can't just use a $1.90 a day, it seems to me. We've got to taper things for uh, climate and for the real estate market. So this, this shows up if we look at spending shares, the sh fractions of the budgets that go on different items. So in the poor countries, food is about 65%. The non-food goods is 27%. And the rent for accommodation is like 8%. And as a historian, I find this very reassuring because I've done these calculations for medieval and early modern Europe. And they get, those are the percentages you get. So these poor countries today in that sense are very much like pre-industrial Europe. The rich countries, it's very different, right? Food's only 24%, non-food goods are 23%, and the cost of accommodation is 54%. So you're used to as well-off people spending a high fraction of your income on accommodation, but it's the same story for the poor in rich countries, which is, of course, why there's a lot of people without homes. So how does this basic needs poverty line compare to the World Bank's line? So first... So I calculated my line for all the 15 countries that constitute the basic reference group for the World Bank line. The black dots here show you the national poverty lines in 2011 dollars for those countries. And the red dots are what I calculate for those countries. And you can see by looking at the graph that the average is about the same in the two cases. The dispersion of my lines is much less. It gets a tighter fit around the average, but they tend to Agree. So my procedure kind of corroborates the World Bank procedure for the types of countries on which it was constructed. But I get much higher values uh, for uh, other parts of, of the world, right? This is partly because of cold weather adjustments, partly because of high rents in rich countries. And, uh, but it's higher even in tropical regions like Southeast Asia. And I'm still trying to work through this and figure out exactly why, but I think it has to do with the fact that in these Southeast Asian countries, rice is the main f carbohydrate. And pe people in these countries now are buying rice. So the rice is purchased from farmers and it's processed. It's husked and polished commercially and then they buy it in retail. Whereas in Africa, a lot of this is basically agricultural, raw agricultural products that are processed in the home. So this is a picture of women pounding millet grains into flour for their own use. So they're buying a less processed product. And I think this, this means that you get a lower real cost for the poverty line uh, when you use those prices to calculate it out. Um, so how much difference does this make? Um, 
This shows you people living below the poverty line, millions in the, this is just in the sample of countries, 20 countries I was studying. And uh, it shows you the percentages of the population. So in Africa, the African countries, my line gives you basically the same answers as the World Bank line because it comes out to the same thing. So 40% of the population is poor by that standard. In uh, the Asian countries, though, it's you get a 50% increase in the number of poor people from 14% to 21%. So there's been a lot of economic growth in Southeast Asia, and it's raised a lot of people's incomes above the poverty line. But if you raise the poverty line as much as I do, a whole bunch of people go back below it. Um, and in the rich countries, uh, something like uh, over 1% of the population are poor by this standard, uh, which is a bit shocking. I mean, the idea that my naive idea would have been that extreme poverty is only found in really poor countries. And to discover that there's uh, 5 million Americans living below that is surprised me. So the conclusions about the poverty line are that uh, we, I've defined it in terms of uh, basic needs. So we've shown that a basic needs poverty line can be specified. It works. Uh, we made the non-part uh, func- of the line a function of climate. And then we explicitly included house rents, which is important to make the thing work for rich countries as well as poor countries. These changes double the value of the line in rich countries, raising it from $1.90 a day to almost uh, to $3.51 in the U.S. Uh, if you wanted to know, could you live on a dollar a day? The answer is no, right? That's way below any the poverty line. Or a dollar, could you live on a dollar ninety a day in New York? And the answer is no, unless you live on the street. Then you don't pay fifty four percent of your income as rent. And uh, uh, to be pretentious about it, the basic needs poverty line provides a globally general generalized micro foundations for the international poverty line. So conclusions about the number of poor, the, little, the new line has little effect on the measured number of poor in Africa, but it detects many more people in uh, Asia. And uh, as I say, almost 5 million people are poor in the USA by this standard. Thank you. That's my part. Okay, good evening. And uh, it will not be very easy to talk after Bob, especially uh, with my uh, very heavy French accent. But uh, I hope that uh, what I will say will be more important than that. Thank you very much for being so numerous uh, this evening. It's quite encouraging to see that uh, there is so much interest for uh, uh, the issue of global poverty. And uh, I wish that uh, this interest would be... uh, shared equally by uh, politicians, especially politicians at the national level, because uh, they are concerned with national poverty, much less by global poverty. Okay, so uh, Bob uh, just uh, told us that uh, indeed the World Bank uh, poverty line of $1.9 a day is not very adequate for uh, all countries. Uh, I would like to say that uh, I tend to agree with that. And uh, fortunately, I'm not anymore a World Bank, uh, a world banker, so I can say all what I want about uh, 
what is being done in the World Bank. But I would like to insist on the fact that this is not only the World Bank, which is using that $1.9 a day. It is also the United Nations, as was mentioned, the Millennium Development Goals, uh, and today's Sustainable Development Goals are defined in terms of that particular uh, poverty line. Now, I also completely agree with this uh, approach that Bob has described, the basic need approach. And this has been in the literature about poverty for uh, quite some time. But at the same time, it is true that uh, this is raising uh, some difficulties, uh, not conceptually, uh, although there are some conceptual issues, but practically to monitor uh, uh, global poverty using the basic needs is not something that is uh, very easy. And I would add that when you work at the international level to use poverty lines, which are not the same across countries, raise a big issue. A big equity issue across countries, because one country will say, but why do you use that line for this country and this other line for my country? So there are reasons why this very simple $1.9 a day is being used. And uh, my task being to uh, describe the magnitude of the poverty phenomenon, uh, the trend, and uh, uh, I will uh, start with this $1.9 a day. And I will uh, show you what has been the evolution of poverty in the world with this particular measure. But I will also uh, touch upon the weaknesses, not only of this $1.9 a day, but other uh, more general issues with what we could call monetary measures of uh, poverty, and this will be uh, the second part of my talk. So this is the outline. I will start by uh, uh, presenting the trends in global poverty using this extreme poverty line. I think it is quite important to insist upon the word extreme. Uh, people in the World Bank or even in the United Nations talk about the poverty line without mentioning that we're really talking here about a line below which survival is difficult. And uh, uh, if we don't keep that in mind, I think that uh, we tend to uh, evaluate the result of the calculations I will show in uh, not the right way. Uh, and then I will say something about the way in which global poverty is being uh, measured, the trends that we observe today and in history, and the mechanics of poverty change, in particular the roles played by economic growth on the one hand and the change in the income distribution or the change in inequality in the other hand. And then I will uh, talk about alternative definitions of poverty and poverty lines, which uh, have not been touched upon by uh, Bob, and which are quite important, and which are really the center of the debate today about uh, uh, the measurement of global poverty. In this respect, I want to mention that a, a report was uh, 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 issued uh, not a long time ago, two years ago, on the measurement of global poverty, this report was uh, headed, this commission was headed by uh, Tony Atkinson, who is one of the most important scholars in the field of inequality and poverty measurement. Tony uh, died uh, a, week, a year ago, uh, but uh, he also left a posthumous book called uh, Poverty Around the World, which uh, should be published a little later uh, this year. And uh, this is a fantastic book, and I invite you to read it when it will be out. So let's talk about the uh, 
global poverty as uh, with this $1.9 a day. A few words about how global poverty is being estimated. And uh, uh, this uh, really is a very difficult uh, task. There are a lot of details that should be taken into account in uh, uh, estimating uh, poverty. And uh, as we know, the devil is in the detail. But in this case, I would say that there are many devils and uh, some of them are particularly scary. The starting point is this, of course, this intentional poverty line which uh, uh, we call the WB, uh, World Bank Poverty Line. Uh, this is 1.9 uh, US dollar a day at international purchasing power parity of 2011. All the words here are important. And uh, what is a bit uh, difficult here that many people would not understand fully the words which are there. What is a purchasing power parity? Uh, why is it to do 2011, etc.? Maybe a more conceptually simple uh, uh, definition, which would uh, ties with uh, what uh, Bob had just said, would be the following: that the poverty line, this international poverty line, is a cost in a given country, country X, in the local currency of country X of a basket of goods, which we can call the survival basket of goods, uh, which is a basket of goods which is observed in the poorest countries of the world, as was just shown by uh, Bob. But the point is that this survival basket of goods, when evaluated in the United States, is worth $1.9 a day. So this is the main point. The point is that we are not taking as a reference what is going on in the U.S. We are taking as a reference what is going in Mali, in Burkina, in Mozambique, and we look at what those people are consuming and the cost of that. And then we are trying to make a, a, a conversion of a currency to see what would be the value in dollar terms. So $1.9 dollars does not mean that we started from the U.S. and uh, we look at uh, we took as a, a poverty line 1.9, and then we went to the other countries. It is exactly the opposite. It is very very important to keep that in mind. If we don't, then we are making a big uh, uh, mistake in interpreting the result. What is the meaning of purchasing parity here? The meaning is that instead of using standard exchange rates to go from one currency, the Ghanaian city, for example, to the dollar, we are using a real exchange rate, which is the value of that survival basket of goods in Ghana and the value of this basket of goods in the United States. So we have a, an exchange rate, cities per dollar, which has a priori, not very much to do with the official uh, exchange rate uh, that uh, would be observed in Ghana. And it is in that sense that we talk about the parity of purchasing power. We are trying to use uh, a conversion factor, which is making the purchasing power the same in the various countries. Now, this approach differs, obviously, from the basic needs, basically because implicitly, what we are doing is that we are looking at one basket of goods and we are pricing it in different countries. Whereas in the basic need approach, we are changing the basket country by country. 
And we are taking into account the fact that the basket must be modified because prices are different. And the commercial factor, as I said, is based on this uh, basket. The problem, and this is a big, big, big problem, is the fact that the conversion factor which is available, which are available to uh, uh, convert purchasing power in Ghana to purchasing power in the U.S. is not the survival uh, good uh, basket. It is something else. It is something that statisticians uh, have computed and which refer to the aggregate consumption of countries. So we are using to make a conversion of a poverty basket something which is not a poverty basket. And this is a big issue. And this is something which has to be remedied. And uh, for the moment, we don't know yet how it will be possible to do it. Okay, to give you some examples, these are uh, various countries, China, Ghana, India, the UAE. Uh, you have the currencies, the poverty line, $1.9 a day expressed in every currency. This is in red. And the last line is the official exchange rate. And you can see that at the official exchange rate, the value of the $1.9 a day would be much higher. The reason behind that, simply the prices in China, in Ghana, in India, in the UAE, are lower than the prices in the United States. And this is the reason why we need this uh, uh, correction of the official exchange rate. The second ingredient to compute uh, the global uh, poverty is, of course, local household data. In all countries, many countries, we have <coughs> household sample surveys of income or consumption expenditures, which are now available at regular time intervals. And this is the basis for the computation of global poverty measures. We start from national poverty measures, and then we aggregate them into the global poverty measures. The rule to do that is to impute to every individual in the survey the uh, income per capita or the consumption expenditures per capita of the household where this person lives. Again, immediately you can see that this is a very, very strong assumption which is missing sub possible sources of poverty. This equal sharing in the household probably doesn't make any sense for two reasons. First, the needs of the people may not be the same. Children do not need the same thing as adults. And second, even among adults, the sharing may not be equal. And we know very well that in many countries, women would be receiving less in terms of consumption uh, than uh, the, uh, uh, what uh, would be going to them on a, on a parity basis. So because of that, we know that, again, we have a reason to uh, believe that we will be underestimating the poverty. Of course, poor people are the people who are below the international poverty line. This is the way in which we compute global poverty. Now, what is global poverty? So let's look at the data. And there is a very good uh, uh, database which has put, been put together by the uh, World Bank after a huge work. And uh, I cannot uh, not cite the name of Martin Ravalian, who is another uh, global expert in poverty, who has been the person, the man, who put together this uh, incredible database which allows us today to make very simple calculation about global poverty. 
So yes, we are in 2013, which is the last set of data available. The world population is 7 billion.2 in the world. And if we want to know the number of poor people, according to the $1.9 a day and all the data available, it is uh, 770 million people, which is exactly 11% of the whole population. Is it big? Is it small? Very difficult to say. What would be the comparison? If you look at uh, developed countries and their definition of poverty, which has nothing to do with the $1.9 a day, we go to Europe, more or less the average would be 12%, 14% of the population being poor. We go to the US, given the poverty line in the US, which again has nothing to do with the $1.9 a day, which is more or less 30 times the $1.9 a day, 14% of poor people is something that we see. So 11 at the global level would be something which would be rather low. The point is that if we want to make a comparison, the best thing is to look at the time evolution. And if we do that, from 1990, which is probably a good starting point because before that, the databases at the global level are a bit incomplete because the coverage is not uh, enough, uh, then we see that uh, this is the evolution over the last 25 years. And you see that we went from 35% of the Uh, popula- glo- uh, global population being poor to 11%, mean the change is absolutely uh, drastic. And you may remember that uh, when the Millennium Development Goals were decided in 2000, the first goal, as was recalled by uh, Bob a little earlier, was to halve the poverty from 1990 to 2015. Uh, and when you look at this, you can see that We did much more than that. From that point of view, it is really a success. We were able in the world to halve poverty, both in proportional terms and in number of poor people. We went from 1,800 poor, uh, million, uh, sorry, uh, 1.8 billion uh, poor people to 0.8, and this is, uh, uh, again, more than that. Now, I saw that it would be interesting to try to compare the uh, last 25 years to the historical period. And uh, because in uh, the past I done, have done work on the evolution of the income distribution in the whole world uh, in the historical period, this is what I tried to do for this presentation. And uh, this is what we get when we go back to the early 20th century, 1910. And you see that poverty in those days was 70%. So we went in one century, more or less, from 70% of the world population being poor to 11%. What is most interesting in this chart is not the red line. It is the intermediate line, the number of poor people. You see that during the historical period, this number is increasing over time, despite the fact that the proportion is going down. And this is due what is going to what is going on in the first row, which is the world population is growing. So we have economic progress in the sense that the proportion of poor people is going down, but this is compensated by the fact that demographic growth is taking away what is gained from an economic point of view. And quite remarkably, you see that it is between 80 and 90 It is 25 or 30 years ago that this process has stopped. 
It is 30 years ago that finally economic progress was able to uh, uh, gain or to win over demographic growth. And I believe that this is an achievement which needs to be uh, uh, emphasized. Now, one big issue is this measure of poverty, which is the number of poor. It is that, without any uh, uh, joke, it is a poor uh, measure of poverty. Why? Simply because it doesn't say anything about how poor people, poor, poor people are. And this is something that we want to, uh, to know. And this is the next step in the analysis here. When we look at the situation in 2013, and we look at the average uh, uh, income or the average distance of the uh, poor people from the poverty line, it is $0.58 a day. So this means that on average, poor people have an income which is not 1.9, it is 1.9 minus 0.6, let's say, 1.3. And we have to keep in mind that at that level, there are still people below 1.3. Now, this is quite important because we see that what we call survival is, uh, if it is survival, this means that many people in the world cannot survive. And they don't. We don't see them dying like that, but we see that they have diseases. We see that they have a life expectancy which is very short. And this is the consequences of being very much below this 0.9 dollar a day. And by the way, there was, there is also a big issue here, conceptual issue, a difficult one and an uneasy one, which is the fact that what do we do with people who died because of poverty? So at one point of time, we observe those people who are still alive. And we said there are so many poor people. But there are many poor people who died uh, in between. What do we do with them? Probably poverty would be much higher if we were to take into account those people who, didn't, who don't, don't appear in the statistics because of that. Since we have this uh, statistic here, then it is very tempting to say, okay, every poor people on average is 0.6 dollar a day from the poverty line. How much would it cost to have all the people exactly to the poverty line? What would be the cost of eradicating poverty if we could target perfectly poverty? And uh, the answer to uh, that question is simple multiplication by the number of days in a year, the number of people being poor, etc. The figure is $160 billion. This is not very much. I mean, I was tempting, but I resist, resisted that temptation to make a comparison with how much people were spending going to the movies, to the theater, or taking care of their pets. But this is the sort of magnitude. It is very, very, very little. If you look at this figure with respect to the global income, it is 0.16%. And if you look only at advanced countries, it is 0.35% of the total income of advanced countries. Then you have the feeling that getting rid of poverty tomorrow should not be a huge undertaking. If everybody in developed countries were to give 0.35 dollars a day, and as a matter of fact, they do, because it turns out that this $160 billion is exactly the level of official development assistance to developing countries. The point is simply that this assistance may not be spent in the right way, or it may not be spent directly to eliminate poverty. 
Okay, so we can do the same thing uh, because I'm late. I will be uh, going quickly here for the previous years. And uh, uh, again, we can do the same thing for uh, the whole uh, historical period starting in 1910. And here again, I insist on the fact when you look at 1910, the uh, uh, poor people are one dollar a day uh, uh, below the poverty line, the 1.9 dollar uh, a day poverty line. This seems to be extremely low. And here, the remark I was making about life expectancy, the uh, health of those people, applies completely. What was the life expectancy uh, in the world back in 1910? It was 32 years. In 1950, the uh, uh, average life expectancy in the world was 46 years. Today, uh, we are above 66. So you see that somehow, uh, if we wanted to look at poverty, looking at those data as we do, looking at those monetary indices as we do, may not be enough. We should look at other indicators, and in particular to uh, these kind of health uh, indicators. I will uh, uh, go to directly to my... Uh, no, sorry, I wanted to show this... Uh, uh, chart, which is quite important, which is the evolution of the geographical distribution of poverty in the world. Three big areas, East Asia and the Pacific, South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa. You start in 1990 on the left, you end up in 2013 on the right, and you see that poverty in East Asia is going down, almost disappearing. In South Asia, it is first increasing and then decreasing. And then now the big region, which is uh, responsible for poverty in the world, is Sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, when we try to extrapolate this evolution, in a few years, it will be the case that poverty will be an African problem, not anymore an Asian problem. What is interesting is that uh, back in the early 60s, a very famous book in development was uh, uh, published called The Asian Drama by a Swedish economist who got uh, uh, the Nobel Prize. And uh, uh, his view was to say that the big issue about poverty in the world was Asia. And in those days, probably was completely right. But the point is that today we can say that the problem of poverty in the world is an African problem and will become more and more an African problem. Not sure I will go to that. Let me move to the uh, second part, alternative definitions of poverty and poverty lines. First thing, okay, $1.9 a day is much too low for many people, and uh, they are right. What is happening if we increase the bar? If we uh, raise the bar, for example, if we look at the poverty line at uh, $4 a day, what are the results that we get? with uh, the kind of uh, uh, software that we have to compute global poverty, we have 2.6 billion poor people instead of 0.8. Huge increase. And uh, the proportion of poor people would be 37% rather than 11%. No surprise here. We increase, we raise the poverty line, many more poor people. What is interesting is that if we do the same thing for 1990, then we find the same increase but comparing 1990 and 2013, we have the same decline in global poverty. 
from uh, uh, 61% to 37%, from 3.3 billion to 2.6 billion. And what is quite remarkable is that since 1990, poverty in the world has declined with all poverty lines above $1.9 a day. So there is something which is extremely strong, which has taken place in the world, uh, which is this uh, equalization which has taken place, the very, very fast growth which has taken place over the last 25 years, which is responsible for that very important result. So we may disagree on the level of the poverty line, but there is very little disagreement on the evolution. Alternative definitions of the poverty line, absolute versus relative. This is very important and probably the most conceptual, important conceptual issue in the measurement of poverty. There is this very famous statement by Adam Smith about the line and shirt. So there was no picture in my presentation, unlike Bob's presentation, but there is an etching of uh, uh, Sir Adam Smith with this uh, uh, famous quote, a linen shirt is, strictly speaking, not a necessary of life. The Greeks and Romans lived, I suppose, very comfortably, though they had no linen. But in the present times, through the greater part of Europe, a creditable day laborer would be ashamed to appear in public without linen shirt. What is behind that is that poverty cannot, must not be measured in absolute terms. It must be measured in comparison relatively to what is going on in the society where people live. And as a matter of fact, this is exactly what national poverty lines do. We saw that national poverty line. First, you had a flat line for very poor countries. And then when the uh, countries become, were becoming richer, the national poverty line was increasing. This is exactly the phenomenon of relative poverty lines. And uh, when we do the calculation using national poverty lines to compute the level of global poverty, and uh, uh, instead of using the $1.9 a day, we find that the number of poor people is 1.5 billion rather than 0.8. So we have almost a doubling of the uh, poverty. But again, if we look at the evolution of the time, we will find again that poverty is declining. Uh, although there are problems there because national poverty lines are moving, are shifting around in uh, over time, and it is not something easy to, to, to do. But the only paper I know which has done that has found this uh, result. Other fantastic example of relative poverty line, the European Union. In the European Union, the poverty line is set at 60% of the median standard of living in the country where people are living. So you see that this is purely relative. If you are in a country where growth is taking place, but growth is neutral from a distribution point of view, poor people see their income growing at the same rate as rich people or as middle-class people. In such a country, poverty will not change. Somebody who had twice the income of somebody else after growth will still have twice the income of somebody else. So the, uh, the median will move at the same rate as the income of the people, which means that uh, uh, there will be no change in poverty. 
which is a bit uh, annoying, but which simply illustrates the fact that uh, this is another view at poverty which is important. The case of the U.S. is also quite uh, interesting. In the U.S., you have a fixed poverty line. And it's a fixed poverty line which goes back to the 60s. And it was set in the 60s, as Bob has uh, shown, based on the minimum cost of, of, a, uh, of a diet. And uh, uh, this cost was multiplied by three to take into account uh, other non-food uh, uh, consumption. Now, when we look at this line, the poverty today in the U.S. is uh, between 13 and 15 percent. But what is most in, in, uh, intriguing is the fact that poverty has not changed over time. So the economy grew very much, but the proportion of poor people remained the same. What is behind that? What is behind that is simply that growth benefited only the upper part of the distribution, not the lower part. Inequality, and we all know that, has increased enormously, has skyrocketed in the United States, and this is the uh, uh, illustration of this. And it is quite interesting to see that uh, uh, with this absolute poverty line, and uh, uh, the poverty in the U.S. is more or less the same as the poverty in, in, in the European Union. Another very important fact, if instead of using 0.9 dollars a day in the measurement of global poverty, we say, okay, let's use the same measure as the EU, 60% or 50% of the median in the world, then we would find that since 1990, the uh, poverty has been going down, basically because inequality in the world has been going down because of the growth being much faster in poor countries. Last uh, uh, set of uh, uh, comments, non-monetary definition of poverty, the deprivation approach. Many people say, we don't like your measure of poverty because it, it depends too much on prices. And you change the price system, and then you have to change the poverty line, and we don't really know what is happening, and we don't know exactly what you do with your uh, uh, exchange rate. So let's look at things which are much clearer. Let's look at deprivation. Let's look at people who cannot consume something because they don't have the uh, means uh, to do that. And this is the uh, uh, idea behind the multidimensional poverty index, which is now being used in the uh, UN. And uh, this is also the idea of the new poverty concept in the European Union, which is the at-risk of poverty or social exclusion. So, quickly, what this... Uh, uh, um, kind of uh, uh, poverty measure is, is simple. You have various items, three clusters, health, education, living standards for the MPI, which applies more to develop, developing countries. And uh, uh, in each cluster, you have various items. Each cluster has a weight equal to uh, one third. And uh, every item in the cluster would have the uh, one uh, would be uh, weighted by one third divided by the number of items. Nutrition, you look at the body mass index of people within the household. Child mortality, you ask about whether a child was uh, uh, died in the previous five years. Years of schooling, is it uh, is there anybody in the uh, uh, among adults who didn't go to school uh, beyond primary? Uh, school attendance, is it okay that some 
school age uh, uh, boys or girls are not going to school. And finally, true deprivation is uh, uh, does the household have access to electricity, sanitation, water, drinking water? Uh, what is uh, uh, how is the floor done? Is it dirt? Uh, is it sand? Uh, uh, what is uh, a cooking fuel? Is it uh, wood? Is it charcoal? Is it dung? Or is it uh, uh, kerosene? Uh, what are the assets available? Does the household have a TV, a radio, uh, a bike, a motorbike, etc.? And these are uh, simple questions which do not depend on prices. People answer yes or no. Then you have a weight and uh, you look at the number of deprivations in the household. And if the number uh, is 33%, more than 33%, you say this household is poor, is deprived, is poor. And if it is below 33%, the household is not poor. And doing that, the United Nations reaches uh, reach a, an estimation of poverty in the world, which is today around 30%. But again, like with other poverty measures, they find that this poverty measure, this uh, headcount, has been going down uh, over the last five years. The problem that we don't have very much insight in the sense that this uh, measure is available only over the, since uh, 2010, and uh, we cannot go uh, beyond backward between 10. And uh, finally, maybe to insist on the relatives, even in deprivation, the relative uh, uh, definition of uh, uh, poverty, this is a new uh, definition of poverty in the EU. It is either you have an income less than 60% of the median or you cannot afford four of the list of uh, items that you have here. And uh, if you have enough time to read the items, you'll see that one of them is take a week away from home. In other words, what is normal, what is really the basic need in a European society is to be able to take one week of vacation every year. I mean, of course, this is not something that you would be considered in uh, Mali or in uh, Haiti. And uh, again, I think that even when you look at deprivation, when you get tired to get away from monetary poverty, this is uh, the relative definition of poverty is there. So let me conclude with this uh, last slide. Measurement difficulties are enormous. They are conceptual. We have seen some of them in the presentation by Bob. I insisted on several of them. And you see that this is a rather complex uh, uh, area. And uh, if you want to uh, shed light on this, if you want to uh, give advice to politicians, uh, then we have to make some uh, choices in this conceptual uh, universe. And this is not easy. There are tremendous statistical problems. But I'm saying, okay, let's look at the country and uh, use the household survey in that country and count the number of poor people. This is assuming that the surveys are comparable across countries. They are not. Uh, and you have people who are spending their lives trying to make surveys comparable so that it is possible to compare two countries. And uh, I'm not insisting on these issues because it would uh, take us uh, too, uh, too, too far. So there is considerable ambiguity about the number of poor people in the world today. There is no doubt about this, and there is no way we can hide that ambiguity. But the main point is that there is a broad agreement on the declining trend, which holds for all levels of the absolute and relative poverty lines, and in particular for the multidimensional poverty index I mentioned. 
Now, clearly, 800 million people today in extreme poverty, so $1.9 a day, is completely uh, unacceptable, especially when the cost of eradicating poverty is so low. This raises the issue of what should be done, what is the kind of policy that we should implement. Now, there are two types of policies. One would be, let's redistribute, let's have a tax on rich countries, and let's distribute the product of the tax to poor people in developing countries. But this would assume that we're able to identify the poor people, that we're able to not only identify who is poor, but to identify how much is missing to that person for that person to be brought to the poverty line. This is something which is extremely difficult. And you can immediately imagine that if in any country you say all the poor people will be receiving this kind of subsidy, there will be many more poor people than the statistics that uh, uh, we have about them. This is very difficult. So the main policy that is uh, being used today is to recommend pro-poor growth. Growth, economic growth, because we know that economic growth is definitely reducing poverty, as long as economic growth is not too unequal. And pro-poor means that precisely we want growth to be benefiting more to the poor people. This must be done nationally, and this must be done at the global level. What the official development assistance is trying to do is something like that. The only problem is that it is not very effective, and uh, there is a huge need to reform this Uh, activities is help given by developed countries to developing countries. And there are other issues which uh, are contributing to uh, poor countries not being able to grow as fast as they could, like, for example, the protection of markets by advanced countries. So there is an enormous scope for poverty reduction, for accelerating poverty reduction in the world to go much beyond the $1.9 a day. Uh, and uh, I hope that uh, this kind of presentation uh, would uh, help uh, politicians to realize that uh, uh, we need, or the world needs their help. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.